0: Welcome to this week's podcast, at Bergen Park Church, from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the elders here at BPC. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And I want to be looking at the story of the Apostle Paul and his encounter with the people of Athens. And if we could turn that mic down a little bit, I'm getting some feedback up here. So Paul shows up in Athens and he brings the gospel to a culture that is really just filled with with idols. And so over these next few weeks, as I mentioned, we're gonna be looking at how Christ, how the gospel confronts the idols in our culture. Now, Coloradans are very, very religious people. I was looking up online recently, uh, a recent survey uh, put on by Pew Research, and they found that only 4% of Coloradans are atheists. Only 4% are atheists. 5% claim to be agnostic. That is, they're uncertain whether or not there is a God. So if we do a little simple math here, what that tells us is that over 90%, over 90% Of the people in our community, in the mountain community, are believers in some sort of God or spiritual presence in the world. 90% plus believe in some sort of afterlife. 90% plus believe in the power of prayer or meditation. They see the value of reading religious materials. They hold spirituality in high. Esteem. So, where are these religious believers this morning? Well, they're certainly not here at Bergen Park Church. Right? For many people, the higher power they worship is not necessarily the God of the Bible. Moreover, for many so called Christians, the higher power we sometimes worship is not even the God of the Bible. So if we're not worshiping God, what is it then that that we worship? What is it we put our faith in as a people? Well, let's look around for a moment. Let's take some time to look out there and also look in here. Okay, one of the fastest growing religions in the Front Range is Wicca, witchcraft, neo-paganism. In fact, there was a recent article in Serenity Magazine, our local uh, magazine, featuring uh, Wicca, talking about the growth of Wicca in our community. People worshiping, essentially, nature. And that's really the idea behind this neo-paganism: The veneration of the earth goddess. The worship of the divine in nature. Spiritual alignment with nature, with the inner self, that, that sort of thing. Another religious movement that has gained tremendous traction in Colorado and the United States in general over the last couple of decades is pantheism. So this belief that God is everything, God is in everything. And a lot of this idea is borrowed from Hinduism, from Buddhism. You see these little Buddhist shrines and, and Hindu influence in our culture today. The idea that the divine is everywhere. There's divinity in all of us. We have a spiritual connection to each other through the divine. And if you spend a few minutes and and actually get to know your neighbors and talk to them about their religious beliefs, their spirituality, many of them will not hesitate to tell you that nature in some way is divine. A divine spirit indwells our surroundings. Nature doesn't point us to God. Nature is God. God. Now, to be honest, nature worship and other forms of pantheism have become fairly normalized in our culture today. It's easy to worship nature, right? Because there's no real requirements or accountability. You just kind of do religion your way. It's appealing, this kind of neo-paganism and Eastern pantheism. It gives you a lot of spiritual latitude to just kind of believe what you want. You can, you can make religion what you want it to be. You can make it really customizable to, to your preferences. The cathedral of the sacred mushroom, for example. The altar of the bong druids of Weed Mountain, right? The sex cult of Tinder hookups. Whatever spirituality you, you, you want, whatever gets you going, whatever makes you happy. Now, what about all the other people who don't believe in the hocus-pocus and all of that? What about the rational people? Well, the rational people around us irrationally worship wealth, status, power, politics, influence. We're guilty of these things as well, right? The rational people attain the path to enlightenment on the basis of their influence in the culture, how many likes they get on social media, the status of their their investment portfolio, and so on. The rational people irrationally belong to the cult of self, self self-worship. And then finally there are the, the church people, right? The faithful congregants sitting attentively with their Bibles open in their laps. The people who have it all together. Well, according to a recent survey put on by Ligonier Ministries, This is the 2022 State of the Church or State of Theology survey. You can find it online. That was conducted exclusively among professing Christians, evangelical Christians. Many Christians aren't even Christian. Over 50% believe that God learns, grows, and changes over time. That's called process theology, that's a heresy and it goes against what Scripture teaches about the nature of God. Over 50% of professing Christians believe that God saves faithful people from all religions, people who are good people, regardless of their faith in Jesus Christ. That goes against what Scripture teaches. Over 50% deny original sin. In other words, believing that human beings are inherently good. We may not even really need a savior, we're not that bad. You see the problem even in the church. Half the Christians out there don't even worship the God of the Bible or hold to a Christian worldview. Oftentimes we end up worshiping a God we've created in our own image to satisfy our own vision of what we want God to be. At least the witches and the bong druids know what they believe, right? So let's be honest, we human beings have our way of contributing to the spiritual chaos that exists in this world. We are an idolatrous people. In fact, the reformer John Calvin, centuries ago, observed that the human heart is an idol factory. We come up with, invent ways of worshiping things other than God. We're polytheistic people. So how does Jesus fit into all of this? As I mentioned earlier, we're gonna take a look at Acts chapter 17 this morning, and I wanna examine the Apostle Paul and his, his, his visit to Athens, and how he confronts the idols in the culture of Athens at the time. So we're gonna to go to Acts 17, and I wanna read verses 16 through 21. So just the first part of this story. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, With my my whole heart, I seek you this morning. With our hearts, we seek you this morning. So let us not wander from your truth. As we read in Psalm 119, Lord, store up your word in our hearts this morning. Teach us your statutes. Walk with us this morning. Let us see Jesus. Help us, guide us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I have really just two points this morning, two simple points. Um, And the first one is this In a world that worships everything, the gospel confronts our idols. In a world that worships everything, the gospel confronts our idols. Take a look at verse 16. Paul shows up in Athens. To wait for his companions, now to understand what's going on here, we need to back up and, and understand the bigger context of the book of Acts. We're, we're starting right here in the middle of the, the book. So what's going on here? Paul is on a missionary journey through Asia and Europe. He's stopping in various cities and proclaiming the word of God to the people in these, in these cities. And he's attracted a lot of negative attention along, his, uh, along the way. Okay, he's got a group of people that have followed him from place to place, and they're trying to stop the message of Christ from going out. So Paul is really on the run at this point. He's been separated from his companions. If, if you back up a couple of verses, you read that Timothy and Silas were traveling with Paul. He's been separated from them, and he's, he's waiting to meet up with them again. You almost really get the impression here that Paul is on a kind of layover in Athens, He's waiting for his companions to catch up. He's waiting to kind of reorganize so that he can continue on his way. He's fleeing for his life at this point. So if, you, if you're on a layover, if you've got a good eight or 10 hours to spend somewhere, what, do you, what are you gonna do? Well, you're gonna maybe go out and, and visit and, and, and see some things. Imagine you're in London and you've got 10 hours between your, your flights. You might go into, into town. You might go see Trafalgar Square or Tower Bridge or some of these sites, right? And that's kind of the impression we get here with Paul. He's waiting in Athens, and rather than just sit on the dock and wait for, for, for Silas and Timothy to show up, he goes into the city. He explores the city a little bit. Now, we don't know exactly where he goes, but you can imagine he walks toward the city center where, where the culture happens, where, where the temples are, where the, where the people are, where the marketplace, that sort of thing. So he makes his way through this, this city, and, and his, his spirit, his heart, is provoked within him. Literally, he, he becomes irritable, angry at the idolatry that he sees. His spirit is vexed by the omnipresence of idols in the city. Now, the kinds of idols Paul encountered in Athens were most likely graven images of, of some kind, made of marble, stone, uh, silver, that sort of thing. At least that's the kind of idols we see show up in the book of Acts as Paul is making his way through these various places. So as he nears the city center, it's likely he, he climbs the Acropolis that is the high city or high place in, in Athens where all the temples would have been, where all the cults would have met. Where the philosophers and theologians would have gathered to debate. And so he passes these various gods and he comes to the Areopagus, the the hill of Ares, the god of war. And he beholds the temple of Athena Nike, the victorious Athena, patroness of of Athens. And he beholds the Parthenon, another temple dedicated to Athena, the goddess of wisdom and warfare. And there were no doubt various statues of of gods and goddesses, some that you could simply worship right there on the spot, others you could purchase and take home and worship in the comfort of your own house. So he sees all of these idols. In other words, he sees that the city is full of the worship of things other than the true God of the universe. And that's precisely what idolatry is. The worship of anything that is not God. It's misplaced, misdirected worship. You see, the idols idols can be false gods like what we see in in Athens. Statues, images, shrines, that sort of thing. We see that today in religions like Hinduism where tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of gods are worshipped. Idolatry can be false representations of God. We see this in the Old Testament. If you go back to the book of Exodus, for example, Moses is up on, on the mountain, receiving the law from God, the Ten Commandments and God's, God's law. And meanwhile, the people are down below, collecting all of their gold, right? And then Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses, throws the gold into the fire and crafts this, this golden calf. And and what's important there in that story is, recall that he says, Behold, this is your God. This is Yahweh. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, the God who has done miracles, the God who parted the Red Sea. So it's misrepresentation of who God is, trying to make God into some physical entity or reality. So it's it's false representation of God. Idols can be ideologies or, or philosophies, that attempt to replace the true God with false representations of reality, social agendas, uh, political views, popular culture, all of this stuff can become idols. Idolatry is the worship of anything that is not the true God. It's the elevation of things, even sometimes good things, to a place of ultimacy in our lives. Idols show up in our society. Idols show up in the church. And I think one of the biggest idols in the church today is actually the idol of image, how we look. See, we're more concerned with how our worship looks in the eyes of the world than with the object of our worship. More concerned with looking acceptable to the world than we are with being acceptable to our God through the work of Jesus Christ. I see this in a lot of churches in America today more concerned with looking compassionate than being compassionate, looking missional than actually doing missions, more concerned that our beliefs look credible to unbelievers than we are with actually believing what is true. One of the church's greatest fears as a whole is that the intelligentsia of our day will turn to us and utter the damning phrase, what are these babblers? trying to say. We fear the cultural cognoscenti. That's why even in churches, oftentimes we don't talk about certain things. The biblical view of sexuality. Let's not go there. Gender identity, the creation order, the human condition, the doctrine of hell, the exclusivity of Jesus. Think about it. Do these subjects make us a little uncomfortable? They make us shift a bit awkwardly in our seats. Do we avoid the whole truth because we fear that the world might look at us and publicly declare? These Christians seem to be preachers of foreign divinities. They're bringing strange ideas to our ears. What are these babblers trying to say? So we need to be careful with this. The idol of image keeps us from embracing the fullness of who God is and what God has done. We need to stop worrying whether we meet the world's standards of religious propriety, okay? Our idol of image has led us into a kind of self-induced cultural vassalage, really. We should not be slaves to our culture, but slaves to Christ, right? Servants of Christ. See, idolatry elevates the wrong kinds of things to a place of ultimacy, Idolatry is really, it's kind of like, it, it's a cheap knockoff. It's the off-brand. It's the poor imitation of the real thing. It's not going to get you to God. All right, we can all think of these products that we've encountered, that it, it's the off-brand, it's not, it's not quite right. It claims to do what the, what the normal, regular product does, but doesn't quite do it, right? Um, that's idolatry. It doesn't really get us where we need to be spiritually. Think of it this way. When you go on Amazon Prime Video and you're, you're looking for, for a movie to watch, like Jaws or something, and they don't have Jaws, right? You have to pay extra for Jaws. But they do have three-headed Shark Attack 5, right? And that's free. It's free. But it's a terrible... Look alike. It doesn't quite, it kind of looks like Jaws, but the acting's terrible, right? The special effects are terrible. The story was written by a 12 year old boy. It's the cheap knockoff. Idolatry is like that, it doesn't get us to the real thing. Or it's like, you know, you, you want to travel, you want to see the world, but instead of actually going, you just stay at home and you, you, you just look it up on the internet. Instead of going to Venice, you just look at the pamphlet. You read the, the pamphlet. Well, it's got some great pictures, but it's not quite the real thing. The sights, the sounds, the, the, the substance, the texture, the taste, the touch, the essence, it's not quite there. Or Paris, it's not the real Paris. It's just a, a picture of Paris. But there's something about being in Paris, sitting among the ancient stone Sipping wine that's almost metaphysical in its implications, right? You can't get that from the pamphlet, from the image on the screen. And that's kind of how idolatry is it's a cheap imitation, but it's spiritually incomplete. It may seem to satisfy us, but it's not going to truly get us to who God is. It's inadequate, it's like the golden calf. It's like a marble statue, a lifeless statue of a god or goddess, or that sort of thing. So the reason Paul is provoked to anger is that he sees an entire civilization wasting away under false worship. Paul sees a society searching to answer their their ultimate longings and questions in the wrong places. In our pluralistic world, there's only one God who will satisfy our deepest longings, There's only one God who will show us ultimate truth and our true worth. There's only one God who knows the depths of our sin and our pain and who responds with a love that is even deeper. There's only one God. A God who is willing to divide our devotion among other gods is not the true God, and it's not a God worth worshiping. So in a world that worships everything, the gospel confronts our idols. That's verse 16. Second point, in a world that worships everything, the gospel frustrates the wisdom of the world. What we see happening in verses 17 through 21 is Paul being confronted by the gatekeepers of the cultural idols, values, and norms. See, when you start preaching the gospel, you're going to come up against the gatekeepers of society. Now, notice where Paul goes to correct the idolatry of the people of Athens, He goes to the synagogue and he goes to the marketplace. He goes to the believers, he goes to the unbelievers. Right? He 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 comes in here and he goes out there. He recognizes that the God fearers need Jesus, and he recognizes that the God deniers need Jesus. The world needs the gospel. The whole world needs the gospel. Now, notice in verse 18 what happens when the gospel is preached. Right? The wisdom of the world is frustrated. The gatekeepers of the world's wisdom show up. The protectors of the cultural idols, values, and norms show up. And we see this happen in verses 18 through 21. Now, in Athens, this took the form of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. These were the gatekeepers of the cultural idols of the time, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Let's take a, a moment and understand who these people were and what they were up to. We'll start with the Epicureans. Now, I'm sure you've heard the term Epicurean before. Oftentimes it's associated with uh, a love for, for food and pleasure and, and that sort of thing. Now, I would correct that a little bit. I don't think Epicurus was a hedonist in a very strict sense of the term. So, hedonists are people that are they're going to go for the champagne and the caviar, and they're going to eat their fill and really just enjoy life as much as they possibly can. The Epicureans weren't quite that way. Their, their goal was to maximize pleasure while also minimizing discomfort. So the Epicurean probably would have preferred water and bread over champagne and caviar, because the water and bread, it would fill you, you'd feel good, you'd feel comfortable, but you're not going to suffer with indigestion later. So their, their idea was to, to, to really balance the, you know, kind of the pain and pleasure in life, to really maximize pleasure, minimize discomfort, and achieve this state of what was called ataraxia, or this state of, of just peace with the world, with the universe. But that's not why the Epicureans had a problem with Paul. Why would the Epicureans have a problem with the preaching of the gospel? Here's why because they were functional atheists. Okay, Epicurean philosophers in the first century believed in a mechanized universe that formed living organisms through a kind of natural selection. So they believed in a type of kind of evolution that was unguided by a divine mind. There was no real divine mind behind it. Now, they believed in gods, but those gods were not involved in the daily operations of the world. So, they didn't believe in judgment, they didn't fear death for that reason. Now, does does that sound familiar? It's called Neo-Darwinian philosophy. It's the same thing that exists today in our culture. This is the assumption of a vast majority of intellectuals, university professors, cultural influencers today. Neo-Darwinian philosophy. It's not that different from what the Epicureans believed centuries ago. So you can see why the Epicureans would have argued against Paul and his teaching about Jesus, because he's preaching the resurrection to a group of atheists. Obviously, that's going to bring about some problems. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, they believed in God, but they viewed God as kind of a rational mind, this kind of divine logos that that existed in all things. So again, that's going to look a lot like the pantheism we see in our world today, neo-paganism, The idea that a personal God would dwell among us or lay down his life for us or rise from the dead, this would have been absurd and unnecessary to the Stoics. So do you see now why these guys would have had a problem with Paul? Now, I've only mentioned a couple of these, these philosophical schools. Now, no doubt there were many others in Athens. This was a cultural center. This is like the equivalent of a a big university town today. This is the city where Socrates came from and, and, and Plato and Aristotle. You would have met skeptics and cynics and sophists and all kinds of different philosophical schools. See, so what verse 21 is really telling us is that these people spent their time doing nothing but listening to, debating, talking about the latest thing. Whatever ideas you could throw out, they wanted to hear it. They wanted to debate it. They would listen to the idea, reject the idea, repackage the idea, hear it again in an endless cycle. The the search for human wisdom is a bottomless pit. That's essentially what verse 21 is saying. New ideas are replaced by newer ideas that are actually old ideas. You look at the world today. Scientific paradigms changing, theories changing, one thing replaced with another thing. What's considered moral and immoral is constantly in flux in our society. You go back 10 years, 20 years, what people claim is moral and immoral, completely different now. What was once considered taboo is now celebrated openly. What was once considered normal is now considered strange and backward. That which is sacred to society is determined by the loudest voices and the self-appointed gatekeepers. As it was in first century Athens, so it is today, 21st century America. In a chaotic world, Paul was showing the Athenians a fixed point. In his proclamation of the truth, his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the hill of Ares to the elites of Athens was considered Babel in verse 18 foreign, also in verse 18. It was considered novel, a mere trend, in verse 19. It was said to be strange, weird, in verse 20. See, the gospel can feel strange when we've spent our entire lives holding on to the wrong things. Think of it this way. Imagine you've been sailing a ship in the dark, following a lantern that's fixed to the front of your, your ship. So you're following this lantern, faithfully following it in circles, in the dark, right? Everywhere you steer, no matter where you steer the ship, you're always on course. That lantern's right there in front of you. Now imagine suddenly that, that light, that lantern is snuffed out, is shut down. And you're forced to now navigate by... The one and only true fixed point, the North Star. Initially, your navigational faculties are going to be completely dislocated. You're going to have to readjust your thinking. You're not following that lantern in front of you anymore. You're following the North Star. You need to unlearn what you've learned and reorient yourself. See, we live in a world that is turned upside down following their truth. I mean you hear this stuff all the time. Follow your truth, follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. Follow your arrow, whatever it is. If we follow that lantern attached to the front of our ship, we're going to wander aimlessly. Go to Isaiah chapter 5 verses 20 and 21 for a moment. Isaiah 5:20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who follow their own truth, who attach a lantern to the front of their vessel and follow it aimlessly. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. Rhetorically, he asks, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? To put it in modern terms, where is the social media influencer, the celebrity pastor, the expert on CNN... The talking head. Where where are these people? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, apart from God, we are spiritually insane. That's who we are. That's what we do. Good is evil. Evil is good. Up is down. Apart from the grace of God, the gospel seems foolishness, like Babel. It's a strange thing. See, we're an idolatrous people being saved, being saved from among an idolatrous people. So ask yourself, am I following my own self-lit lantern in the dark? Am I following my own self-defined truth around in circles? Is my spirit provoked within me for the blindness that plagues our world? Does my heart break for those who are lost at sea, tossed back and forth by the wind, by the waves, as Ephesians 4 talks about? The winds of every uh, every teaching, the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming? Does our heart break for that? Are we willing to step in in truth and love? We should be distressed. We really should. We should be distressed that evergreen is full of idols. And we should put that distress to good use by engaging the world. See, we have something better to offer. We have the message of the cross. And if you don't know where to start, start with your own neighbors. Have a conversation. Invite them in. Start with the local missions our church participates in. Kitchen One for One, for example. The first Wednesday of every month, they're down in Idaho Springs. Show up, be there, sit down with people, get to know them, right? Echo, Evergreen Christian Outreach, The Rock House down in Idaho Springs, looking for people to come and mentor young kids, kids that need help, that need a conversation, that need some care, some love in their lives. Neighbors helping neighbors, community give back, life's options, Operation Christmas Child, the list goes on. There are ways we can engage our world with the love of Jesus Christ right here in this community, in a world that is worshiping the wrong thing. We have the truth. I want to invite us to to pray two things as, as we close, as we go to our time of communion, two things to really ponder this morning. To ask God, you can pray this Lord, show me where idolatry exists in my own life and eradicate it, remove it. Show me Jesus. Second thing we can pray, Lord, lead me to someone this week with whom I can share the good news. Prayer is a dangerous thing, God shows up and answers. Okay? If you pray, God will answer. Ask him to show you someone this week. You can share the good news with that person. In a chaotic world, Jesus Christ is our fixed point, okay? He is our north star. He is the light of the world. Is it strange that the the creator God would know us personally? Yeah, that might seem a little odd that God would care for us. Is it counterintuitive that the judge of the world would be willing to take our judgment And give us his life, eternal life. Yeah, that might seem a bit strange to our ears. But God in his wisdom has given us Jesus Christ. The gospel is Babel worth listening to. I think that's the point here. It's not just a new idea. It's a life-changing idea. So we're going to go to a time of communion this morning. I want to invite you, if you have not taken the, uh, the communion elements, we have some at the back. We have a couple of trays here at the front. So I want to invite you to pick those elements up and let's just pause for a few moments and pray. Ask God to guide you. Those two things I, I mentioned. Lord, show me where I've gone wrong. Expose the idolatry in my own heart. And Lord, lead me this week to someone with whom I can share the good news of the gospel. So let's just take some time and reflect.